today we have a guest speaker with us. Um, Eric, come on up. And Eric is not necessarily a guest to Fieldstone, but he is a guest uh, to the stage. But Eric Lash uh, is a young guy from our church here. I say young, he can grow a beard and I can't, so I don't know what the definition is. But um, uh, Eric and Liz Lash are a part of our team here. And uh, uh, when did you guys start coming? Sometime this winter or late uh, fall? First of January. First yeah. of January. And, and they've jumped right in. And uh, just a talented young couple who, who both of them feel a very strong call to serve in ministry in some way. Uh, Eric uh, definitely kind of feels that call, whether it's uh, pastoring or maybe maybe the mission field. Go talk to Orin and Lauren. You may end up in Central America My somewhere. My wife would love that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, so uh, Eric is going to speak this morning. Really uh, appreciate his willingness to do that. I think that God's put something on his heart that is worth us hearing today. And so uh, it's an honor to allow him to do that today. And next week we will kick off a brand new series called Basic, kind of a revisit of, of some topics that we hit last fall. Uh, but if you would give Eric a round of applause and welcome him, and he'll get going. Thanks, bro. Thanks, bro. Keep going. I got to drink of some more. <laughs> All right. So like Justin said, I'm Eric Lash, for those of you who don't know, which that means absolutely nothing because it's just another name. Uh, but I did attend Moody Bible Institute uh, through Chicago, so I do have a degree in... Uh, Biblical studies, I almost forgot what I got my degree in. Um, so I have been trained a little bit, but uh, so I know a thing or two, and I'm going to preach on one of those things today. Um, <laughs> so I'm going to get started a little bit differently. I'm going to ask you just to bow your head and close your eyes with me. Let's go before the Lord. Father, I thank you so much for this opportunity that you've given me to come before your people and share your word. And God, I pray that uh, today that's exactly what this would be would be you speaking to your people, and I thank you for using me in that, but right now I just lift everyone in this room up to you, Lord. You know where we're at. You know our hearts, and uh, you have something that you want to speak to each and every one of us, so uh, let that just be true today. So we lift ourselves up to you. Pray that you would have your way and your will in this time, and uh, we thank you for that, Lord. We love you, and we praise you, and we ask these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. We live in a performance-based society, and it sounds weird to say it that way, but I think it's a truth that we can all agree on. Um, for instance, it's not always a bad thing, uh, but if you go to a high school graduation or a college graduation and a valedictorian gets up to speak, you expect that that's the person who has earned their place there. You expect that that's the person that's performed the greatest in their academics or what have you. You expect that out of them because... That's something that you earn. Um, same thing at a job. If someone gets promoted, you expect that that's the person who has performed their job responsibilities to a higher level than anyone else that was up for that promotion. And that's a good expectation. You don't want to walk in and know that that person got it just because of who their parents were or who they know. Um, and if I walk into a doctor's office, I don't know about you, but if I see plaques on the wall, I need to know that those are more than just participation awards for showing up to medical school. <laughs> I want to know that those are things that have been earned. I'm going to trip over something up here. Um, but that's, that's based on their performance throughout medical school, and that should be something that we expect. And we can take that performance-based lifestyle into our own lives, too. And again, it's not always a negative. If you're an athlete, your performance 
is what you judge your growth based off of. If you're training, if you're doing the things that you're supposed to do, if you're working hard, then you know you, you judge your performance based off of, am I running faster than I used to? Am I lifting more than I used to? Am I throwing faster than I used to? Whatever that performance is, it becomes a great indicator for us. However, when you start to find your identity based off of your performance, that's when we run into some real issues. For instance, for that athlete, once, you know, if they come across a leg break, if you're in the NFL and you break your leg, there's a lot of times that that's a career-ending injury. Well, if you find your identity in that, then where do you find yourself at that point? And so we can take that into our spiritual lives as well. If we're judging our performance, if we're judging our worth, or if we're finding our identity based off of our performance, then we've already missed the point. Because our lives with God, our, our relationship with God is based on grace. That's how we have to come to him in the first place. Uh, it's not based off of our works. It's not based off of anything that we do. And so when we start to find our identity or our self-worth based off of our own performance, we run into some real danger with that. And we start acting like we can earn our place before God. We can earn a hearing with him or we can earn our spot with him. And the church has been in danger of this for centuries. This isn't something new and we're, no exempt, we're not exempt from this danger. And so because the church has been doing this for so long, we need to stop and we need to realize just what that's looked like. So back in Christ's day, uh, back in biblical times, if you will, uh, there were some religious leaders, some guys who were just the top dogs in their class, if you will. These are the guys who knew the law, who understood Jewish law, who followed it to a T. And these were guys who found their identity in that law. There were 613 Old Testament commandments that they lived by, and that's what they judged others based off of too. So they held people to this standard, and whatever those commandments were, they even came up with a laundry list of their own rules to go along with those to make sure that not only were they doing what the law said, but they knew exactly how to do it. And again, they held others to that standard. So much so that they even judged Jesus based off of these. So, for instance, God, God told us to keep the Sabbath holy. God said that he created the world in six days, and on that seventh day he rested, and that's the pattern that we're supposed to find. That Sabbath is for our rest. That Sabbath was created for us, but these religious leaders took that and ran with it, and they perverted it to the extent that they judged people for doing any work on that day. If it was the seventh day and they were doing any work, they were judged by it. And Jesus was no exception to their judgment because on that day he healed people. He miraculously healed people. This is God in flesh healing people on the Sabbath and he's being judged for it by these religious leaders just because he's not following their rules. You can see how that religion becoming their identity is a huge crisis. And that's kind of the background for our scripture today. So um, I'm going to start out while... Well, one of our scriptures today, I should say. I'm going to start out in Luke 20, and it's going to start in verse 20. So if you have your Bibles with you and you want to switch, flip to that, um, that's where we're going to be starting out. Um, and in this section of scripture, so it's going to be Luke 20, verses 20 through 26. And in this section of scripture, we're going to see, we're kind of going to plop down in the middle of a series of questions that these religious leaders have been bringing to Jesus, trying to catch him, trying to trick him, um, into giving something away that they can condemn him by based on that law. And so in this section, uh, 
as they try to trick God, which is a joke in and of itself, but as they try to do that, the Pharisees try to switch it up on him. And so the Pharisees send some of their disciples. And uh, all you need to know about the Pharisees is as far as those religious leaders are concerned, they're the top tier. They're the top dogs in that religious group. And so they send some of their disciples as if to send him some people with new faces. So Jesus wouldn't be able to recognize what they were trying to do. They wouldn't be able to see who these people were. Um, But again, it's kind of difficult to trick God in that regard. Uh, And along with them, they send a group of Herodians. And this group of Herodians are basically associated with the the, the ruler Herod. And he was placed over Israel by Rome to kind of keep an eye over their dealings, uh, just to make sure that Israel wasn't stepping too far out of line um, and going against Rome or anything like that. And so we have two groups, one group that the, that's there for Israel and one group that's there for Rome. And those, if you actually look at Luke 20, those details aren't in there. We find those details in Matthew and Mark's accounting of this story. But they're important details for us to understand when we hear the question that they ask. Um, And so verses 20 through 22 say this. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere, that they might catch him in something he said, so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. So they asked him, teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. They're just trying to butter him up. Um, But then they ask this question. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? And so it's that question. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? That's their trap. And they're laying out a trap for Jesus. And we'll explain that in a second. So um, both groups have their own side of the story. So the Jews that are there, the religious leaders, the Pharisees' disciples that are there are against this tribute, which is a yearly tax that Caesar commands everyone in his jurisdiction in Rome, in Roman provinces, to give to him, to pay tribute to him as the ruler, as the king. Um, But the thing is, is that Caesar thought of himself as a god. And with the Jews, they saw a huge issue with that because there is only one true God and they worship that one true God just like we do. And so when this man who thinks that he is a god is demanding something from you, that looks like idol worship. You're paying tribute to somebody who thinks that they're a god. And it's a double whammy because the money that they would be paying tribute to Caesar with has his face imprinted on everything. He's put this money into circulation, so he's put his face on it. And so these religious leaders also see this as a in direct violation of the command of God not to make graven images of, your, of anything that could be considered an idol. And so this is a double whammy for them. They don't want to pay this tribute because it looks like idol worship. And so with all of that being the case, they're looking at this and saying, if Jesus says that, yes, it's lawful for us to pay this tribute to him, they're going to spin that like Jesus is saying it's okay to worship idols. Follow me there? So they're going to spin that and they're going to condemn him based off of Jewish law and say that he is blaspheming and saying that it's okay to worship anyone other than God. And then on the flip side of that, they bring the Herodians with them. So if Jesus says no, the fact of the matter is is that Caesar thought of himself as God. And I know I already said that, but people who think of themselves as a God tend tend not to like to be told no. And so if he's looking at Caesar and he's saying it's not lawful for us to pay this tax that he's demanding of us, 
then the Romans can then charge him. They can charge him against Roman law. Then they can condemn him. And the Jewish leaders are just hoping that either way this goes, Jesus is going to be condemned by crucifixion. They're just hoping to get rid of him. They don't like him. He's against their status quo, and they're trying to get rid of him. And so the stage is set here for Jesus' condemnation. The stage is set that whether he says yes or no, he's going to be condemned. However, Jesus is a little bit smarter than these men who are bringing this question to him. And so Jesus is going to choose option C, and he's going to flip the script on these guys. And so our next verse here, in Luke, verses in Luke 20, 23 through 24, show Jesus' response to this. And he says, and the scripture says, but he perceived their craftiness. He saw right through what they were trying to do. I just picture them as like the worst actors ever trying to be sincere, but he's like, you guys are stupid. So he sees right through them and he, he fires back with them with two things. First, a demand. He says, show me a denarius. And a denarius is that Roman coin. It's worth a day's wage. Um, and that Roman coin that we talked about. So he says, show me a denarius. And then he asked the question, whose likeness and inscription does it have? And again, this is such an obvious question. Everybody there knew what the answer was. It was probably a rhetorical question, but they humor him with a response and they say, Caesar's. And so with this simple turn of events, Jesus kind of flips that script on them and he's now the one in the driver's seat. So we see that the tide kind of changes here. And these guys who came hunting Jesus now find themselves feeling a little bit like the prey. And so Jesus is about to teach them a lesson and school's about to be in session with the greatest teacher who ever walked the earth. And so that's where these religious leaders now find themselves. And so Jesus' lesson uh, that he teaches next is what I want us to consider today and what I want us to really think about what he's implying. And so Jesus says this. He said to them, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. This is uh, verse 25. And so for a long time, I would kind of read this scripture, and I don't know if you're like me, I would tend to kind of glance over it, kind of look over it and see like, okay, so what he's saying is we render unto Caesar's what it, the things that are Caesar's and to God's the things that are God's. I thought he was kind of saying you give both what they're due. It's kind of the equivalent of us saying like, sure, you go ahead and you pay your taxes to the government out of your paycheck, but then you give God his tithe as well. <clears throat> and if we look at it that way, it seems kind of simple that he's, he's saying it's not either or, it's just both and. You just pay both what they're due. But if we look at the response from the guys, from the men who came to ask this question in the first place, we can see that there's something way more profound here. Because in verse 26, they say that it says this, and they were not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said, but marveling at his answer, they became silent. These religious leaders, the top tier, top dogs of their day, were astonished by his answer. And they weren't even able to speak afterward, and they just went away. That tells us that Jesus said a little more than just, you pay each what they're due. And so we have to be able to ask the question that they didn't. There's a question that can be implied here that we need to ask to find out what exactly Jesus was talking about. And that unasked question is what exactly are the things that are God's? When Jesus says the things that are God's, what exactly are those? And I think had they been bold enough, had anybody in that group been bold enough to ask that question, Jesus would have responded with a simple question of his own. 
and he would have said, whose likeness and inscription is on you? Because he makes that comparison. If Caesar's image is on that coin, then give it to him. That's not what I'm concerned with. God's image is on you. That's what he was concerned with. And so these religious leaders don't ask this question because they know their scripture. They understand exactly what he was implying here. And so their minds would have snapped right to Genesis 127. And in Genesis 127, it says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And so we need to understand, just like they did in that moment, that we're created in the image of God. We are. Everyone in this room is created in God's image, and as such, we belong to him. And as our creator, we owe him something, and what we owe him is our very lives. And so that's the crux of the matter of Jesus' teaching. That's the, the core of it, and it can be boiled down to this, that God doesn't want our religion. He just wants us. God doesn't want our religion. He just wants us. And so the religious leaders of his day, he's simply telling them that they missed the point. They missed the point because they got so focused on what they were supposed to do and how they were supposed to do it based off of this law that they forgot who they are and whose they are and why they're supposed to be doing the things that they do. But we aren't exempt from this danger. We aren't ones who are above this just because we know God through Christ. And so we have to stop and we have to ask, what is our religion? What are we in danger of following as just our religion? And I don't know where you are today. Maybe your religion is coming to church. Maybe you were just raised that way, that that's what you did all the time. Mom and dad said it was time to go to church because it was Sunday, so you went to church and you just kind of went through the motions with it. You go to church every week or every other week or whatever that standard that was set was, and you kind of check that box. You kind of act like you're done for the week. You did your duty. But maybe you're more like me, and your religion can be your routine, what you go through on a daily or a weekly basis. And maybe that includes things like reading your Bible and praying a certain set of prayers or whatever. For me, for the longest time, it was three chapters a day and praying through some five minutes of prayer, let's even say. And those were the things that if I got through those, I felt like I could check those things off my list and I was doing my Christian duty. I was, I was spending time with God. And then maybe some of you in here are also just ones who are trying to do the right thing. You're trying to live out the right things of the faith, the right commands, and trying to avoid the wrong ones. You're trying to do the best that you can with what you have. You're trying to be better than most or... Um, just kind of live up to the standard that you think has been set for you. But the fact of the matter is, is if we just focus on the right things, we tend to fall into one or two categories. When we're doing really well and we're doing the right things, pride can kind of seep in. And we start to judge others thinking that we're better than them because we're doing better than they are based on a certain set of criteria. Or on the flip side, if you're not doing as well, shame and guilt can set in. And we lose all of the joy and the peace that we're supposed to have in this relationship with Christ. Now, all the things that I just mentioned, those can be good things. Going to church, reading your Bible, praying, trying to do the right thing. I'm not saying stop doing those things. But what I am saying is that we can do all those things. We can do all the right things, but we can fail to experience God. 
we can fail to actually interact with him and spend time with him, and that's what it's all about. And so that's why Jesus' teaching is key here, that God doesn't want our religion, he wants us. And so we don't need to bring our best to him, we just need to bring ourselves to him. And I think one of the best passages in scripture that shows that is James 4.5. James 4.5. And it says this, Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? And it's here that we get a glimpse into God's heart for us. Again, we're created in his image, and his image that's in us can be seen in our spirit. That spirit that he made to dwell in us, that spirit that he placed within us. And he yearns for that. He yearns jealously for that. And that's such a truth that you have to let sink in. That The fact that God is not jealous for your work, for your talent, for your abilities, for your capability of performing to a certain level. God is not jealous for that. God is jealous for you. That's not just a truth in general. That's a truth for you. And I want you to take that and to kind of treasure that in your heart today. If you take nothing else away from this, just dwell on that. Take James 4, 5 home with you. The fact that God is jealous for me. He yearns jealously for you. And the, the fact of the matter is, is that God is crazy about you but we all fall victim to those do's and don'ts from time to time. Just thinking that we have to just do what's right and avoid what's wrong and then we'll be okay. But we have to keep ourselves from making that our our identity. Our identity is found in him. Our identity is found in the fact that God is jealous for me. God wants a relationship with me because he's the one who created me and made me what I'm supposed to be. And if God wants that closeness with me, once I let that sink in, that makes me want that closeness with him as my creator. Just the fact that he wants to be with me, the fact that he wants to spend time with me makes me want to be close with him. But then we have to ask the question, what should my relationship with God look like then? If God wants me to be close with him and he wants to be close with me, what does that look like lived out in life? And the final scripture passage that I want to take you through Jesus addresses just that. He addresses what our relationship is supposed to look like um, in John 15, verses 1 through 8. And this is Jesus talking to his disciples, and he gives us a great word picture um, about what our lives look like lived out in relation to him. And so he says this, I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. But by this, my father is glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. And we can learn so much about our relationship with God from this, that our job isn't to do the work and to bring that to Christ. Our job isn't to do the work to please God. Our job is just to stay connected. Our job in our relationship with God is just to stay connected, to be there, to be present with him. As Christ says, to abide in him, to live in him. And once we're connected to him, God is pleased to do work in our lives. He's pleased to produce fruit. And that fruit that he produces, produces glory for him. We make much of God when we stay connected to him. 
John Piper famously quotes that God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. And I think that that rings true here, that God is glorified in us when we're satisfied with him, when we find everything that we need in our relationship with him and we stay connected with him. And that's what Christ is urging us to do in these um, verses here. And so the fact of the matter is that we're completely dependent on God. He says flat out in this that apart from him, we can do nothing. We're completely dependent on God and our relationship with him. But that's not something new to any believer that's sitting here. It shouldn't be. Because we have to come to Christ in the first place in complete dependence. We know that the gospel teaches us that we can't earn anything on our own. That we can't be good enough. We can't work our way to God for this relationship in the first place. And so if you've come to Christ and you've found salvation in him, it's kind of ridiculous that at some point we allow ourselves to switch gears and think that then to maintain this relationship, we have to work at it and we have to be good enough and we have to do all of these things. And that's just not true. The truth is that we're still completely dependent on him. We still have to be connected to him. We still find everything that we need in him. And so... The good news is that we can't be good enough, but Christ is, and he's all that we need. And so the privilege to come to him, the privilege to be with him, the privilege to be connected with him and to commune with him has already been paid for. God has already done the work. And because God has already done the work, this is why God doesn't want our religion. He's not interested in our work anymore. He just wants us. He paid the price for us, and he just wants us to give what he earned. And so a challenge is needed today, and that challenge is simply just to bring ourselves back to a place where we're seeking God, where we're looking for him, where we're looking for that relationship, that closeness to him. With no strings attached, no reservations, no nothing that we're holding back from him, we just come to be with him, just simply come to be in his presence. And so I have some practical steps for you today. Um, And these practical steps, take one, take all, take whatever it is that God kind of lays on your heart. Just consider these today. And so the first one is come to Christ. And that's where we all have to start. I just mentioned that. If you haven't made that step in your own life, if you haven't made a decision to follow Christ as your Savior, to find salvation in him, to be made right with God through him and what he did, If you haven't made that step, I highly urge you in that direction today, but that's something that you're going to have to do. That's between you and God. And so if you're ready to take that step, I challenge you to talk to somebody today. Talk to somebody who you know is a committed follower of Christ. Talk to somebody who lives this out in their life. Talk to me if you have to. I'll be around after the service. Talk to Justin in your bulletin. There's a connection card. Just talk to someone. Reach out. Let someone know that you're ready to take this step and you're ready to follow Christ. But once you have made that decision, then the next suggestion that I'd give you is to make yourself available. Make yourself available. This is going to take conscious effort to set aside time to be with God. Just like any relationship that you have, when you're trying to grow that relationship, you have to make time to be with them. And so setting aside time might be just you grabbing a Bible, a notebook, just ready to hear what God has to say or you talking to him. But if that feels a little bit clunky to you, if that's not something that you're used to, I just offer you 
pray simple prayers in those first meetings. Pray simple prayers like, God, I'm here, and I just want to know you more. God will not leave that prayer unanswered. So pray simple prayers once you're getting used to that, but make yourself available. Three, read scripture for quality, not for quantity. And this is something that made huge difference in my life. Um, I used to think, like I said before, that I had to read like three chapters a day, and if you did that, you made it through the Bible in a year, and that's a great pursuit, but when you're just reading it to read it, um, the fact of the matter is, is that the Bible is the Word of God, and as the Word of God, He wants to speak to you. So let Him do that. So read your Bible with an open heart, allowing God to just speak through it, to, to tell you something that matters. And be willing to stop and just dwell there for a while. Be willing to stop and think about those things for a while. So read scripture for quality, not quantity. And then fourth, mix it up. So if you've been following Christ for any length of time, we can tend to get stuck in our routines. We can tend to get stuck in a rut. So if you're the kind of person who likes to read their Bible every day, pray every day, and has their quiet time right in the morning, first thing that they wake up, that's an awesome thing that you're setting aside that time to meet with God in that. But I challenge you this week, if you feel like that's just become your routine, mix it up. Go for a walk with God. Invite him on a walk with you. And as you walk through nature, just enjoy nature with the one who created it all, with the one who created you. Maybe dwell on that thought process that God is jealous for you because he's the one who created you. Just go for a walk with God. Or on the flip side, if you're somebody who's always on the go, who's always busy, who's always got something to do. I know a lot of people have their quiet times in the car on their commute to work or whatnot. And if that's the case, that you're always busy and you're always on the go, this week, sometimes set aside, even if it's a half hour or an hour, to get away, to find some quiet, to find somewhere that's peaceful, just to calm yourself and to stop. And I'm actually, if that is you, I'm going to give you a scripture reference and write this down. So write this scripture reference down. If that's you, find some quiet this week. And the scripture that I'll give you is Matthew 11 verses 28 through 30. So Matthew 11, verses 28 through 30. Write that down and just spend some time reading over that verse and really hear about the rest that Christ wants you to have, wants you to experience. And finally, the last suggestion that I'll give you is to pray honestly. And what I mean by pray honestly is that a lot of us tend to think that God just wants us to bring our big requests to him. He wants us to bring the big things that uh, we need him to move on or we need him to work on or we need him to do. But if we're only doing that, then we're only giving God a piece of ourselves. And so when I say pray honestly, I mean pray continuously. Pray like it's a conversation. Pray, have a conversation with God while you're at work, in your day-to-day -day life, in your day-to-day -day dealings, while you're at work, while you're with your family, whatever it is that you're doing, invite God into that. Invite God into those times. Make that a conversation and remember that it's a two-way conversation. Let there be enough silence between you and him so that he has a chance to speak back. He might have something to say while you're at work or while you're with your family or anything like that. Just, again, it kind of goes back to that make yourself available, but know that that's a two-way conversation. And as you're doing that, Recognize that that's what Christ is talking about when he says we're supposed to abide in him. Abide in Christ. That's what it looks like. It's a day-to-day, -day, it's a constant conversation, it's a constant goal to abide in him. And so we need to have to stop feeling like we have to perform for God. 
And we need to recognize that God doesn't want our religion. He doesn't want that performance. He doesn't want our work, and he just wants us. It's time for us to come to him simply and just bring yourself to him. Just bring yourself to him and experience the relationship that you were created for. And so remember that he's jealous for you. And as we sing this last song, I'm going to pray, but invite the band up here. But as we sing this last song, just let that truth sink in that he is jealous for you and that he wants you and worship him for that. Just sing that out to God. Be thankful for the fact that we have a God who's created us, that wants us, that loves us, and just wants to be close to us. And so if you would, I'm going to go ahead and pray for us today. Father, I thank you so much again for this opportunity that you've given me to come and share your word with your people. And God, let us just dwell in the fact that you love us today, that you're jealous for us and that you want us. God, let us remember all that you've done to make that relationship possible and to praise you for it, to be thankful for it, God, but also ultimately to take advantage of it to be with you, to seek you out, and to know what that relationship that you paid so much for was meant to look like in each one of our lives. So we thank you for that, Lord. We love you. We praise you for all that you do for us and for all that you are. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.